This message by Jeff Hodgson was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jeff serves as a pastor and bivocational elder at Cornerstone Church. How good it is to be here with you this morning. If you're a guest here and you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have free ones back there. If you would just raise your hand, we'd be happy to give you a copy of God's Word to take with you today. We even have it in Spanish. That's right. Just raise your hand if you need one, and we're happy to give you one. We are going to be skipping around quite a bit today, so it's going to be virtually impossible to keep track of where I'm at. But we'd like for you to have a Bible to take with you uh, when you go home today anyway. Uh, How good to be in this season of traditions, decorating the house, and and, uh, enjoying Advent once again. Uh, One tradition I especially like is getting to preach an Advent sermon and, and wear my special Advent sweater that my, my little Nana from England knitted me when I was much younger. I know, it's sweet, isn't it? <laughs> uh, how good it is to be in this season and to gather together and to consider uh, just how merciful and kind God has been and to look forward to how merciful and kind God will be uh, toward us. Let's pray, and then we will consider God's word together. Lord God, thank you that we, we are able to gather this morning in your presence as a church family and to hear from you again. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word. Thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us. Thank you that you have given the stories of your people through thousands and thousands of years that we might know you better. Thank you for this series that we're finishing. Thank you for the books of Samuel. Thank you uh, for the life and reign of David. And thank you mostly for our one true king. Thank you for your son, our Savior, Jesus Uh, to whom all of these scriptures point. God, bless our time to get uh, together today. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord God. Magnify yourself in our eyes and bless your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do come to the end of our series on the books of Samuel. Quite a tale. The end of the judges and the beginning of the monarchy. And wouldn't it be nice to have a good old straightforward kind of happy ending to these books? Uh, We like happy endings, don't we? Frodo destroys the ring, the Von Trapps escape to Switzerland, all of that. Well, there is a happy ending, but the happy ending of 2 Samuel is not quite as straightforward as those happy endings. We arrive at chapter 20, And the chronological narrative of 2 Samuel ends. Briefly and sadly, it's more of the same that we have been reading about since chapter 11. There's another rebellion against David and another murder committed by Joab, the head of his army. So chapter 20 wraps up a hero story that followed a tragic arc. So much promise came with David's kingship and things were going so well until the horrible 
Bathsheba and Uriah episode. After his monumental moral failure, we see David living with the consequence of his sin, just as the Lord had said that the sword would never depart from his house. There would be gracious moments along the way, but David was to face rebellion and strife the rest of his days, clearly showing us that if we want the true hero of the story, don't look to David, but look to the Lord. So now as we wrap up to Samuel, we don't get to the very end of David's reign. That actually comes a couple of chapters into 1 Kings or at the end of 1 Chronicles. But here at the end of 2 Samuel, we do get an amazing epilogue that is the happy ending to the saga of David's rule. Like the epilogue in so many of the books that you've read, the main purpose is not so much about revealing a bunch more information. It's about putting a summarizing last word on a tale that otherwise stands on its own. So we can say this morning, thank goodness for the epilogue of chapters 21 through 24. I believe taken as a whole, it is a happy ending indeed. Indeed, a word of great hope, even in the midst of failures and difficulties. We're not going to have time, of course, to read all of chapter, chapters 21 through 24. So I plan to do a good bit of summarizing but we will have opportunity to read parts of chapters 22 and 23 a bit later into the message. So let's turn to the epilogue to 2 Samuel. Contained within it is a grace that affirms that the mixed bag of David's reign, an inspiring yet sometimes confusing, encouraging but also at times disappointing, exciting, yet sometimes appalling, even offensive story, ends up being a reign of great hope, even in the face of the ugliness of sin. To make this point, the Lord finishes this book with these last four chapters as kind of a, kind of a literary oyster, if you will. It's rough on the front and back, but within it, you might just find a pearl or two. Because oysters are sort of surprising in that way. Do you ever, you ever wonder about the first guy who decided to, well, he found an oyster and he decided to pry it off the rocks and crack it open and eat what's inside of it? <laughs> I mean, these, these are not attractive creatures. And, um, I mean, I understand eating an orange. Uh, it looks appealing, it smells good, and as you're peeling it, it smells even better. It's not surprising that when you taste it, its aroma is sweet and delicious. But an oyster? It's a little surprising that somebody would crack that open and decide to jump right in. Well, our epilogue is not an, an orange. It, it is an oyster. Uh, and we're going to discuss a hard story at the beginning of it and a hard story at the back end of it. But we are going to finish off with some pearls that are in the inside. And oh, what pearls they are. The front side of the oyster, the first 
tough story to read is chapter 21. And in it, we get a sad vignette, which we should briefly consider. And it begins like this. This is chapter 21, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. All right, so we've seen this recurring theme of the consequences of sin, haven't we? Now God is revealing that Saul's unjust treatment of the Gibeonites earlier on in our series is what is affecting Israel today. Well, alerted to this reality, David takes it upon himself to try to rectify the situation. Now, sadly, instead of consulting the Lord as to what he ought to do, David goes to the Gibeonites and says, hey, what would you like for me to do? And not surprisingly, their minds are set on vengeance. So, despite David's stated intention to do good to Saul's descendants, and against Deuteronomy 24.6, which says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. David gives over seven of Saul's grandsons to be publicly executed. Something that it's important to note, God did not direct David to do. So now the misery of a famine now has murder added to it by these men's flawed solution. And what's interesting to note is that the famine does not relent upon the grandson's unjust murders. Real important to note that. It would be easy to miss that if we read this section and said there's blood guilt on the land, seven of Saul's descendants are executed, and then the famine is lifted. It would be easy to mistakenly think that that's what brought about the lifting of the famine. But something else occurred before the famine was lifted. God wasn't satisfied with men's vengeance. What came before it is that David saw one of the grieving mothers of the executed boys protecting the bodies of her dead sons from scavenging animals. And God then moved his heart to compassion. In an act of honor and kindness, David had the remains of Saul and Jonathan and Saul's grandsons properly buried in Saul's father's hometown and tomb. In the wake of the sadness and misery that sin causes, compassion is shown. And it's in this that the heart of the Lord then gets revealed. And it is after that that the Lord ended the famine. Grace followed grace. 
in our own recent history, more recent history, there was a significant difference between the actions of the victors in World War I and the actions of the victors in World War II. In the first, the Versailles Treaty brought about humiliating punishments upon Germany for its part in World War I. And the result of these humiliating punishments was resentment, bitterness, and the seeds being sown for the horror of Nazism. What the victors thought was justice was actually only unjust abuse. On the other hand, the Marshall Plan that followed World War II accompanied true justice, but with investment and care for the vanquished, seeking not retribution, but rehabilitation into the peaceful community of nations, making Germany one of our great allies over the past 70 years. Grace followed grace. So, one ugly side of the oyster, David was at times given to the self-reliant schemes and solutions of man whose injustice often just added misery to misery. David needed a savior. He could not depend on himself. David needed a savior. All right, let's skip to the very end of 2 Samuel for the backside of the oyster's ugly shell in chapter 24. It's another story whose meaning isn't necessarily obvious, and it begins like this in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Okay, we, we don't get explicitly an explanation of why the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. But there may be some clues in the text as to what's going on. One important clue is that when the census result came back in, what it reported was how many men there were capable of battle. It wasn't just merely a raw count of all the people, like a tax census may have been. So it was perhaps, at least in one sense, an assessment of military strength. Now why in the world would he need an assessment of military strength? All right, was there something that was stirring in the heart of the nation that suggested the people were once again beginning to forget their dependence upon the Lord and to trust in themselves? Perhaps they were trusting in the strength of their army against foreign threats instead of the Lord. We don't know for sure, but, but perhaps this is what was going on. And so to highlight the strength of the army and then to bring calamity upon them anyway would certainly be an obvious way to make the lesson that, uh, that it's futile to trust upon your own strength, your own resources, your own army. 
Or was there yet another rebellion stirring within the people that the Lord made David perceive as well? Perhaps David therefore wanted to know what was available to bring to bear against the people should they rebel. We don't know, but it does say that David was incited against them. So we're not sure. Those are some possible reasons why this census was directed. Either way, what we do know is that there was something going on with the people that wasn't good. So the Lord used David's own sin to bring about a painful lesson. Was David's sin a latent distrust in the Lord revealed as he felt the need to count up his assets? Or was this an act of a king whose love for his people was turning to suspicion and hate? We don't know. But regardless, David does come to his right mind and realizes that his actions were sinful. But the consequences, nevertheless, were to be suffered. To correct whatever was going on, the Lord brought a pestilence of some sort upon the land for an appointed time. And for David and the people, one lesson was clear. Our safety and our security are entirely dependent upon the mercy and provision of God, not the size of our army or any other thing. God then directed David to buy a piece of land, a place, a threshing floor, upon which to build an altar where appeal could be made to the Lord. The only reliable source of security and help, and upon that appeal, God was merciful to end the plague. Little kids make such good illustrations uh, for our spiritual instruction. How, um, have you ever noticed how often it takes physical pain to really get a point across to a child? Uh, don't mess with that, sweetie. It could hurt you so often falls on deaf ears. And try as you might to protect them from themselves. Sometimes they just decide to give it a try anyway. And when the pocket knife slips and she just about cuts off the end of her finger, well, now the lesson is learned. Ask me how I know this. (laughs) So how sad it is to have taken the physical pain of a pestilence to remind the nation and the king of that which should have been obvious to them all along. These two sad vignettes, the murder of Saul's grandsons and the numbering of the armies of Israel and Judah, teach us some very, very important things. They teach us something about the consequences of sin. God is holy and does not take lightly when his law and his character are besmirched. So our amazement should not be that bad things happen to God's people on account of their sin. Our amazement should be that God's mercy is so great. Their sin brought about a judgment, but it didn't bring about their annihilation. Even though 
God was rightly angered, he nevertheless showed mercy and restraint. They teach us about the inability of David to overcome sin. David, though Israel's king, could not prevent his or his people's sin and thus angering God. Nor could he do anything to make up for it when it got them into a mess. And these vignettes show that the greatest hope that he had was in the mercy and grace of God in dealing with sin against a holy God. These vignettes show that David needed a savior. So we've had a couple of ugly sides. So now how about some pearls? Within this rough outer casing of the oyster, the hard, discolored, unappealing shell, there lies two pearls of God's mercy that make all the difference. There's a reason that this epilogue is composed and placed at the end of this book. It is the capstone of this whole story. It is the last thing to take from this book. It is the thing that God wants us left with. And the pearls are found in chapters 22 and 23. As we first look together at some of what David wrote in chapter 22, you'll probably think, hey, that sounds an awful lot like a psalm I know. And you'd be right. It is Psalm 18, and it contains some of the most powerful words of gratitude to God and acknowledgement of God's character in all the Psalter. I've selected from this portion of the chapter some of David's greatest acknowledgments of God's grace and his greatest words of praise uh, to God. And I'd, I'd like to review those. And you know what? Um, I, I, there was a, I was going to read this to you, but, but here's what I'd really like to do. This is your song. I, I'd like for us to read these things together. I, we're going we're gonna to put them on the screen, so rather than me just reviewing them with you as they come up. Let's, let's read these together, starting with uh, verses 2 through 4. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the days of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. For you are my lamp, O Lord, 
and my God lightens my darkness. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. You delivered me from strife with my people. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That is your song. Ah, what a gift. Warts and all, we love David. He was heroic in so many ways, but the best thing David does for us is give song to our need for the Savior. His psalms do that. What wise recognition of his need for God and what soaring tribute to God who attended him. But his, all, his life also proclaimed his need. Jesus foretold, or David foretold Jesus in the way that he could never do what only the Christ could do. David could neither prevent nor atone for sin. So we can be so thankful his songs reflect the mercy of God and the perfection of Christ. The second pearl I want to point out in the middle of the oyster has to do with David's so-called mighty men in chapter 23. The fact that David's mighty men are reviewed is significant. Their exploits are mentioned, but not really in exhaustive detail, for that really isn't the most important part. I mean, are, are the most important things to take from this mighty man section, things like verse 21 that tells us that Benaiah struck down an Egyptian who was a handsome man? Probably not. <laughs> When I read that, I, I so wanted to put up a photo of Steve Martin as King Tut, but I'm not, not going to do that. College students are saying, who's Steve Martin? <laughs> no, the important part is not so much the exploit. The important part was that Benaiah being there as an ally to David was a gift from God. Benaiah and all the other men are gifts from God to David. God brought him allies. 
God brought him gifted, mighty, wise people with whom to collaborate, to serve, to call upon and depend, to honor, and to have a history. God called David to a unique responsibility, but God didn't call David to this responsibility alone. Being the king was often lonely work, but even in the midst of his sole responsibility and burden, he could look around him and see a great host who were with him. God ensured we would remember these gifts to David by listing them by name in his holy word to be held in honor for all eternity for being friends of the king. David recognized the grace of God which saved him, and he also recognized the gifts of God that were the people who helped him. Now, don't these two pearls kind of sound like a parallel to the two great commandments upon which uh, depend all the law and the prophets? David loved God, and David loved the people God brought him. Doesn't that fit nicely? So why did God give us this epilogue to the books of Samuel? First and foremost, to increase our love for the Savior by seeing how much Israel's hero king needed him and how faithful he was. David needed a Savior. And second, if God's chosen king needed a Savior, doesn't that make us see our need for him as well? We can see our lives mapping on to the experience of Israel and David in so many ways, can't we? We need a Savior. Can we see ourselves in the tendency to trust our own wisdom, our feelings, and our judgments, just like all the human beings before us have done? To trust in the world's wisdom to obtain our peace or our satisfaction. To be geared toward the pragmatic, this will work or that won't work. Aren't we vulnerable to these instead of trusting in and walking in the Lord's ways and then leaving the results to Him? Can we see ourselves taking stock of material possessions, stock market and bank accounts, health reports, political reports and predictions to find reassurance of our safety and security and contentment in what we trust instead of in whom we trust. So how do we combat these tendencies? Well, let's learn from David. He recognized his need for a Savior and praised him for faithfully answering his need. All of us who call ourselves Christian understand the greatness of the salvation that Jesus won for us by his life, death, and resurrection. We are reconciled to God only because of what Jesus did for us, not because of anything that we did. We absolutely have a Savior, but how often do we remember how much we still need him? Maybe you haven't been to war against the Philistines, but do you have enemies? 
How has the Lord given you grace to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil? How has he intervened in your life? What can you praise him for? As one of my teachers, Winston Smith, is fond of pointing out, worship makes a difference. It changes us. Grace comes to us as we recall the faithfulness and character of God. Those incredible words that we spoke together earlier from chapter 22, those words of faithfulness, those words of praise, oh God, may those be on our lips. And may grace come as we recall the faithfulness of God, seeing all that He has done and recognizing our great need of Him. That's David's first pearl. And here's the second. Do we appreciate and avail ourselves of the people God has put in our lives? Are there people in your life who encourage your faith and help you? Who are your mighty men? And do you see your local church that way? In the difficulties of life and in your failings, do you come into this place and look around you and see the people God has placed to help you to share those words of grace, to build up your faith, to encourage you along the way. Do you see this place as your mighty men? David's epitaph, what he might have liked to have put on his tombstone, as it were, is found in the beginning of chapter 23. It doesn't take a whole lot of paraphrasing to see how it applies directly to us as well. So may his words be true for us. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one lives justly with other men, walking in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant in his Son, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? The epilogue of chapters 21 and 24 are a synopsis of David's rule, and it's a synopsis of our lives as well. Though saved, we still need the Savior. In the midst of our failures and of our troubles, the hard, ugly parts, we still need His mercy and His grace that we might stand and grow to be more like Christ, worshiping and glorifying God with our redeemed lives. 
So come, Lord Jesus, come. In this Advent season, we cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. By your Spirit, only you can make it so. We remember, David needed a Savior, and we need a Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have cared for us. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you don't leave us to try to figure out how to go in our own schemes, in our own designs. Thank you that you don't leave us to yourself, but that your grace is present for us. That you speak to us, that you have mercy upon us, that you are faithful to us to give us grace. And thank you for the gifts of the people that you have surrounded us with. Lord, may we avail ourselves of that grace through them, and may we be mighty men to others as well. God, be glorified in our lives that we may sing with David of all that you have done. May it be in this Advent series we have a greater appreciation for how much we need the Savior to come. For your glory. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jeff Hodgson during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865 865- We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.